Electric guitar can make a powerful statement in a song. Wielded in the hands of a woman, the results are rebellious, a riot against sexist assumptions in music and a challenge to social conventions. When I was working on the book and I got to talk to people who had come up with Rosetta Tharp or remembered her, the refrain that I always heard was, you know, I'd never seen a woman play like that. That's Gail Wald, professor at George Washington University and author of Shout, Sister, Shout, the untold story of rock and roll trailblazer Sister Rosetta Tharp. In this episode, Gail and I dig beneath the highly masculinized, whitewashed history of the electric guitar to its true origins, a Black gospel performer named Sister Rosetta Tharp, also known as the godmother of rock and roll and her undeniable legacy. I'm Sasha Geffen, a music critic, journalist, and author of the book Glitter Up the Dark, How Pop Music Broke the Binary. This is Shattering Gleam, a podcast on music, gender, and the place where they collide. In 2021, Willow Smith performed a renewed version of her debut single, Whip My Hair, in a live stream concert. It is the song that introduced her voice when she was just nine years old. She sings it flanked by other women playing electric guitar and bass. At the climax, she straps on an electric guitar of her own. Willow starts playing, and a stylist comes on stage to shave her head. These two transformations happen so quickly that you could think of them as one and the same. Willow has her head shaved and goes from being a vocalist to an electric guitarist. Both moves make her androgynous. The electric guitar has kept a strong association with masculinity since it was developed in the 1930s. It's a loud instrument. It was invented to keep up with brass and woodwinds, which drowned out the acoustic guitar in full band settings. The sound of an electric guitar fills a room and demands attention. The acoustic guitar, on the other hand, was considered a women's instrument for much of its European history. Its quietness and portability made it a good fit for domestic space. It was an accompanying instrument, never the main event. But in the post-Reconstruction United States, with the advent of country and blues and the dawn of popular music recording, the gender of the guitar shifted. Bluesmen like Lead Belly, Bo Carter, and Blind Lemon Jefferson made recordings throughout the early 20th century that linked the guitar to the male voice. Blues women like Mamie Smith, the first person to record the blues, and Ethel Waters also made popular records, but they tended to be solo singers and pianists, not guitarists. As more blues records sold, guitars got louder, first with the resonator, a guitar with metal cones in the body that acoustically amplify the vibrations of the strings, and then with the electric guitar, whose magnetic coils transmit electrical currents to an amplifier, which lets the guitar blow away the brass that used to drown it out. This new, loud, hybrid instrument came to be identified with men, from Chuck Berry and B.B. King at the dawn of rock and roll, to Jimi Hendrix and Jimmy Page during hard rock solidification in popular culture. The image of a man playing electric guitar is so firmly embedded in cultural consciousness that seeing a woman with command over the instrument, like St. Vincent, Brittany Howard, or Marissa Paternoster of Screaming Females, registers as something of a glitch in reality. Despite the electric guitar's long-standing masculinity, 
one of the most significant players who laid the foundation for modern guitar style was a woman. The gospel singer and guitarist Sister Rosetta Tharp helped guide the instrument through its transition from acoustic accompaniment to electric showstopper, beginning with her first single in 1938. Her ebullient, ecstatic fingerpicking turned the guitar into a voice in its own right, a duet partner. In the early 1940s, the guitar even got its own billing on concert marquees, which proudly advertised Sister Rosetta Tharp and her guitar. With me to talk about the gendered history of the electric guitar is Gail Wald, a professor at George Washington University and the author of Shout, Sister, Shout, the untold story of rock and roll trailblazer Sister Rosetta Tharp. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Likewise. When I was researching for this episode, I came across some articles on how the tradition of acoustic guitar in Europe in like the 18th century, 19th century was very much gendered female because it was quiet and it was smaller and it was like considered domestic. So it makes sense that it would kind of have this flexibility in terms of how it was gendered, maybe in people's domestic lives, people's everyday lives. I guess what I'm seeing is when you look through recording history of like early blues recordings, a lot of the blues guitarists that are most widely recorded and most widely distributed are men. You know, you have like Robert Johnson and Lead Belly. There are some female guitarists from that period, but it, it seems to be many more men. Does the record industry have some kind of hand in associating blues guitars with black men during this period? I think it totally does. I think women were invited into recording studios less. And when they came into recording studios, it was more assumed that their voice would be their instrument, that they would make music with their bodies rather than with, you know, kind of attachable <laughs> instruments. And so I think that there's a way that the archive of recorded sound doesn't tell us the full story of what existed. And that in some ways, we don't have access to the ways that women played guitar, what they played, how often they played, except maybe in other media, but we don't have recordings. Given the barriers that women faced to kind of public performance or to identifying as public entertainers, there were already gender constraints. And so that's another reason why they wouldn't have appeared as often as musicians. And in this tradition that Rosetta Tharp was from, um, the Church of God in Christ, a Pentecostal denomination among others, women played country instruments. I know Rosetta Tharp's mother played mandolin and, and it was, Rosetta Tharp was probably plopped on her mother's lap to play piano because as a little child, piano is really accessible to children. You just pound on it. But I think probably before she ever knew a guitar, she knew her mother's mandolin, which is just a smaller string instrument. So I don't think the recorded history tells the whole story. When I was doing research for this book, years ago, I was in an archive of a Pentecostal church in California. And I didn't find anything having to do with Rosetta Tharp, but I did find family portraits. And these are white and black families with women holding guitars in the family portraits. And it suggested to me that in a certain context, playing a guitar 
could be totally normative for women. <laughs> and there was like a kind of already slippery gendering of the guitar in different contexts. I mean, maybe think this got intensified with electric guitar. You know, like this idea that somehow the guitar is the shape of a woman's body, you know, right. and that like somehow playing it, you're like, you assume the masculine position in the heterosexual binary. Yeah, that's fascinating. So it's not necessarily that she was exceptional for taking up the guitar, you know, as a woman, but more in what she was able to do with it kind of through her career to become this this star of recorded sound as a guitarist and a woman at the same time. When I was working on the book and I got to talk to people who had come up with Rosetta Tharp or remembered her, the refrain that I always heard was, you know, I'd never seen a woman play like that. And there were so many textured things that people meant by that. And one of them, I think, was I had never seen a woman who developed her skills in that particular way to play in that extroverted a manner on stage, you know, as a badass. I, that I had never seen, which I think was maybe slightly different from like, had I ever seen women play guitar? So it was really hard to or interesting to parse what people meant by that because People said it again and again and again, and sometimes it meant I never saw a woman who I thought was as good as a man on guitar, and here was one. And so it messed up my whole idea of who gets to play guitar. Yeah, absolutely. Tharp's career also coincided with the advent of, of television as a popular medium, as well as with the advent of the electric guitar. These are both kind of amplifying technologies, right? Like they take a source sound and a source image and make it really, really big and project it, you know, across space or across airwaves. Do you see a connection between those two technologies rising kind of through her career? I love that question with the technology. I mean, I think she was an amplified person. <laughs> I mean, I think she went through the world not being afraid to amplify her voice. What your question makes me think of is that she honed her skills in the context of non-amplification. So her earliest performances, like where she really learned what to do, what she was doing was like on the tent shows and the gospel highway where she would have been in auditoriums and in churches and outside without amplification, like the early blues women who had to be able to like sing loud. So I like to think that she had this loud aesthetic even before she was amplified. <laughs> I think that amplification like gave her more opportunities. I'm certainly happy that television happened when she was alive because we actually don't have other images of her playing her guitar. There's images of her from the 40s singing, but not playing. It's lucky that she was on TV. <laughs> what do you think it was about her guitar playing that created this illusion of a second voice or, you know, you refer to it throughout the book as akin to like speaking in tongues, the way the guitar went off into these flights, these solos. How did Sister Rosetta Tharp create this ecstatic communion through her playing style? I think it was her adaptation for the guitar aesthetics that she was modeling from the musical world around her. She had grown up in a context where it was understood that the spirit could speak through you and that that was a part of authentic spiritual experience. And so I think she developed 
this kind of the guitar as a counterpoint to the voice. She was never just strumming along. She always had a kind of call and response with the guitar. But more than that, there were moments in her playing where I think she would stop singing and the guitar could take over and speak for her. And in a sense, that was a translation of speaking in tongues or having languages other than the usual human languages like kind of communicating something important and doing it in a public setting. So I do think that there's a way that we can like attribute the guitar solo to the kind of aesthetics of the Black Pentecostal church in particular. The idea that like at a certain moment, what you're going through exceeds kind of normal language and you need another language to express it. Tharp's dexterity and ease with the instrument coincided with and possibly enabled some measure of relief from the strict gender and racial codes of mid-20th century America. After getting married on stage at a spectacular public concert at Griffith Stadium in Washington, D.C., Tharp and her husband Russell Morrison would sign their Christmas cards as Mr. and Mrs. Rosetta Tharp Morrison. In 1949, Tharp was arrested at a department store in Richmond for attempting to buy new clothes as a black woman. Legend has it that she played her way out of custody. Blues guitarist Drink Small recounted the event, saying, I heard it said that she was in jail and that she played so good, the jailer let her out. Tharp's guitar playing had the power to momentarily dissolve social conventions. Though she never spoke of it openly, it's likely she had romantic relationships with both men and women. Some accounts say she may have had a relationship with her longtime collaborator Marie Knight, though Knight denied that the reports were anything more than idle rumors. These private rebellions coincided with her public ones, germinating rock and roll as a break from post-war conservatism, and ultimately forging a soundtrack to the nascent figure of the teenager, an autonomous young person with inflammatory tastes who expanded the cracks in her parents' world and made a new kind of space for herself. When rock and roll took off as a teen craze in the 1950s, its sound owed a lot to the way Tharp had played her guitar in the decades prior. The electric freedom she traced for herself on stage and in the music industry spilled out into a culture hungry for freedom, bored of old conventions and ready to sound out the new. Do you think that that gift and, and her ability to, to perform and to play the guitar the way she did did that change the way that her gender was perceived in the public eye? There's another great anecdote is that after her second marriage, the one that she did on in the arena in the big public concert, she started signing her Christmas cards like Mr. and Mrs. Rosetta Tharp. There's almost this kind of like <laughs> assumption of like the male role, just like in these small ways. Um, do you think her public perception was of gender variation in any way or an expansion of the role of like woman at the time? I totally do. I think the combination of her virtuosity, particularly on electric guitar, her unashamed and loud and audacious performance style. If I read into her gender presentation, there was always an excessiveness built into her gender presentation. In between song banter on the stage that we have recorded, she's like, hyper feminine, where she'll say, oh, thank you very much. When On that footage on YouTube that a lot of people have seen where she's playing at like a railroad station. So the, this was designed for television. 
they bring her in on this horse-drawn carriage. And she exits the carriage. She's, like, wearing these, like, pointy 50s heels and this, like, way-of-the-moment fancy coat. And she says, oh, the lovely horsey, the lovely horsey, something like that. So I feel like there was this combination of, like, ripping it and then playing the lovely horsey, you know, that I feel like she was unsettling gender in all kinds of ways. Yeah, totally. It's almost like it follows the logic of drag, right? Where, yes. you know, if you kind of accentuate femininity past a certain point, it becomes like elevated and, and camp and, and fun and not just like obligatory. It was kind of like she was able to perform that hyper feminine role or the role of the modest woman. Cheryl West has adapted the book for a musical called Shout, Sister, Shout. Cheryl West, a terrific playwright. She has a young Rosetta Tharp on stage listening to the radio and learning to do elocution um, according to like the sounds of like a white voice on commercial radio. It's a fantasized thing. But to me, it's really moving on so many levels, both in terms of her class desire, the poverty that she grows up in, so desire for upward mobility, but also it shows like the ways that her adaptation of a certain kind of stage voice was very performed. And in some ways it takes like an imaginary scene like that to open it all up. So you see like, oh, she's learning to play a role and she does that throughout her career. Right. Totally. Like just having this really observant ear on the way that that sound can kind of move people and, and move the social fabric in really specific ways and then and playing the, into that. And the code switching she would do for different audiences. So, you know, the, oh, the sweet horsey, you know, she knows she's on TV and the audience is white. She would communicate with her black audiences differently. So you see that too in the ways that she performs femininity for, I think, these different audiences. We mentioned a little bit before about how the electric guitar, really just the guitar in general, is sometimes constructed as being like a, a woman's body or maybe more generally the sound of electric guitar can often have this libidinal effect. The way that it goes off into solos has been tied to sexuality in a lot of recordings. And Sister Rosetta Tharp, she never identified publicly as, as queer or bisexual, but it was, you know, alleged there are several accounts that she likely pursued relationships with both men and women. Do you think her alleged bisexuality was connected at all to her public persona as a musician? Did her celebrity maybe make that that possible, even if it was, you know, still taboo at the time and, and largely not really spoken about? It's so hard to know how different audiences received her, how they saw her. I do think that being in the entertainment world, the gospel world, like any other pop music world, was filled with people who were working hard at night and morning and then not get much sleep. It wasn't that different from the Chitlin circuit in the 1950s. The gospel world had its own legendary parties. And I do think that because she was a celebrity, she did have access to a kind of freedom she never would have had as just a domestic woman. And partly because she chose not to have children or because of the ways that she structured her marriages, she never was a domestic woman. Or she could choose to be the domestic woman whenever she wanted and on her own terms. I'm getting away a little bit from your question about her sexuality, but I do think there was a kind of autonomy 
and self-ownership that she displayed both in her playing and in her persona that challenged gender normativity. Being your own boss and somehow also being better publicly at something that men were supposed to be better than you at. So to me, the the identitarian part of it is less powerful than kind of what she portrayed out there in the world that was there for anyone to take, which was like not a normative presentation of femininity. Were there ever rumors of her having this queer sexuality while she was alive? Or is it really just something that came out after her death? No, I mean, I think everyone talked about it when she was alive. Unfortunately, you know, so when I talk to people about it for the book, what would sometimes happen is that people would say, oh, don't quote me on this, but, and then they would either tell me something like, I know she did this or that, or I know she said this or that, but don't quote me. So there was that piece of it that um, a lot of people were unwilling to go on the record about it. And I thought that in itself spoke to kind of ongoing taboos, but also to the power of rumor. You know, There's a whole aesthetic to just kind of like, I'm going to talk about this, but I'm not really going to talk about it. And we all know it, but we're going to pretend that we don't know it. When I interviewed Marie Knight, who Rosetta Tharp is said to have had a sexual relationship with, I interviewed Marie Knight five or six times for the book. I used to go visit her at her apartment in Harlem. She never told me how old she was, but she was probably, you know, kind of getting on 80 and identified as a religious person. And at some point in our relationship, I finally said to her, you know, listen, I have to ask you because other people have told me this and I want to put it in my book, but I need to give you a chance to respond. And she got really angry at me and threw me out of her apartment. She was basically like, we're done with today's conversation. But in the book, I ended up wanting to honor the living memory of a stakeholder, you know, Marie Knight saying this never happened. Who was I or anyone else to say that it happened? So it left kind of challenges of how to tell the story. Um, But I do think in the end, you know, the speculation is its own truth. (laughs) Even if somehow we can't know, but there's different ways of knowing. So (laughs) totally. And I, I feel like there, so there's this kind of contemporary impulse now to like look back at her career and be like, you know, a queer black woman started rock and roll. And I, I feel like that impulse maybe doesn't even necessarily like rest on her private life. It's like, you can almost say that just by what she was able to do in the public eye, which was like queering her, her station, queering so much around her just through performance and the way she carried herself through life. I totally agree with that. And sometimes people would say a bisexual woman, and I prefer queer for that reason, because I feel like it doesn't necessarily attach itself to a stable identity. There's obvious performativity in that phrase. I mean, saying she invented rock and roll, no one person invented anything. So I love that it's like totally hyperbolic, like she invented rock and roll. And then saying a queer black woman invented rock and roll to me is like a very important performative gesture of like putting a flag somewhere and saying there is a prehistory for people now who want to be able to look to her as like an important model for something. And that, you know, it's a kind of putting a flag, it's like putting a pin down and saying like she existed, 
she was there. And so we can create a history that, you know, includes her. For young people today, you know, to be able to say, I'm part of that history, or I'm just one node in that history. So I really like when I hear people saying that. I mean, I really like that phrase. Um, even if like, from a historical perspective, it's not exactly true, but I don't think that's the point. Right. Yeah, it is a performative countermeasure to like so much of the canonizing that has like, you know, scrubbed these nuances out. It's like, no, it's so, not. like celebrity, you know, I hear like, you know, Lizzo and Janelle Monet say it. Willow Smith has been talking about Rosetta Tharp. And so I just think that's awesome. Gail just mentioned the rapper, singer, and flutist Lizzo as one of the artists who has worked to uphold the memory of Sister Rosetta Tharp. In December 2019, Lizzo performed with her band on Saturday Night Live. Her guitarist, the singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and actress Celise Henderson, played a white custom Gibson SG guitar, built with three humbucking pickups and a whammy bar, a faithful recreation of one of the iconic guitars Tharp played. In sparkling red rhinestones, Henderson's guitar strap spelled out the word sister. She played warm electric leads that almost sounded like another voice in dialogue with Lizzo's lead. The look and sound of the guitar honored Tharp's place in popular music, and so did the way Henderson used it, not just as a backing instrument, but as a vivid, vibrant voice in its own right. During that SNL appearance, Lizzo performed exclusively with other black women, A traditional rock and roll trio, guitarist, drummer, and bassist, accompanied her vocals while a troupe of B-girls danced in sync with her. This moment reads to me as a kind of collapsing of time and genre, from early rock and roll through the dawn of soul, funk, and hip-hop into the present day. An assertion that in every era, at every stage of popular music, Black women have been innovators and key players. How else do you see her, the, the genealogy of her artistry kind of reflected in, in contemporary musicians? The incredible thing is that it's still really hard for women, and maybe in particular for Black women, to be guitarists or bassists. It's still hard. <laughs> and there's st- it's still like intractable, which is just nuts. So I feel like we haven't seen the end of her influence that as long as people who identify as female or feminine still feel like picking up a guitar is somehow masculine. You know, maybe the point is just for people to be able to play with these identities, but certainly not to feel trapped or limited by them. So maybe it's not about transcending gender, but, you know, kind of transcending the idea that you have to be in one place. You can't play with all of these genders. I just heard that Gibson Guitar is going to put out a Rosetta, wants to put out a Rosetta Tharp custom guitar. Like, how uh, great would that be? Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> it's like, yeah, at long last, right? <laughs> Do you, I wonder if it'll look like that, like classic white SG. Well, I think that's the one that she's most identified with. That white Les Paul guitar that she played that had different names over the years mm-hmm. um, is very much identified with her. So... Yeah. Yeah. So it comes full circle. <laughs> Gail, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your expertise on Sister Rosetta Tharp and her guitar. Thank you so much, Sasha. I am a huge fan of your work and I'm really excited for this podcast. In the way she coaxed her guitar to sing with its own ecstatic voice, 
Sister Rosetta Tharp played a key role in the instrument's evolution from acoustic to electric, taking it from a backing role to a star in its own right. She also bristled against popular assumptions that only men could play guitar well. In her dexterity and bravado, her electric presence, she moved against the grain. Her work fused the secular and the sacred, merging the exaltation of the spirit with the excitement of new technology. For decades, critics, fans, and record companies have lionized male guitarists while marginalizing female ones. That double standard has helped preserve the electric guitar's gender association. Though the work of men she influenced would eventually eclipse her own in the white, male-determined rock canon, Tharp's influence still rings out among those who are told repeatedly that they're not allowed to play guitar. Like Tharp, they go ahead and play it anyway. Today, pop and rock bands carry echoes of Tharp's formative musical riots. On the pop-punk band Meet Me at the Altar single Hit Like a Girl, frontwoman Edith Johnson urges her listeners to revolt, refuse. The lyric video punctuates each word with three exclamation points. Beneath her voice, guitarist and bassist Taya Campbell locks together brash, arresting riffs, launching the song forward like a diesel engine. The musicians play in lockstep toward the same goal, to cleave open the world for themselves. What sounds out in the space that's left behind when they burn away the silence with incandescent noise? Thanks for listening. Want to hear the songs mentioned in this week's episode, plus more of my picks? Search for our official Shattering Gleam playlist on Pandora, or click the link in the show description. You can find Shattering Gleam on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Special thanks to all those who make this podcast a reality. Kelsey Albright, Sarah Bentley, Roger Coletti, Bill Crandall, Jen Derwin, Emily Doherty, Rachel Elias, Sarah Esikoff, Melissa Hicks, Mia Jung, Sade Robinson, Anthony Spera, Mike Spinella, Sam Termine, Chris Watherspoon, Teddy Zambetti, and of course, me, your host, Sasha Geffen. Shattering Gleam is a SiriusXM production. SiriusXM Podcasts.